Now, if you've got a Bible, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. And uh, we're going to read through to chapter 2, verse 3 again. These are God's words, and uh, they're great words, a great chapter in our Bible. So let's read God's word together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, empty, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is the seeds, each according to its kind, on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years." And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. I love the translation in the ESV about things creeping all over the ground. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Just notice the change in the text, not let there be, but let us 
make, God expressing his love and relational self in the creation of humanity. And let them, that is humanity, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation." Amen. Well, let's pray just for, for God's help. Our Father, we pray that as we study these words, they would achieve by your Holy Spirit the purpose for which they were written, encouragement for your people, confidence in our Creator God. Encourage us, instill in us confidence, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, please keep your Bibles open and have the service sheet open up in front of you. And then at some stage in the talk, you'll see a very complicated diagram appear on the screen, just at the point you might have fallen asleep, okay? But you'll have to wait for that. Now, you see the first heading I've stuck on the service sheet, Confidence in our Creator God. And the reason that is there is just to remind us that what guides our study of these verses, and these are kind of famous verses in the Bible that uh, we're studying, what guides our study of these verses is not a set of questions that we bring to the text of Scripture, our questions. For example, questions about creation and evolution or creation and science. What guides our study of these verses is the rest of Scripture, and in particular, the rest of Genesis. The first chapter in a book is what it says it is, the first chapter in a book. And it makes little sense to wrest that chapter out of the book and treat it as if it weren't in the book. What guides our study of the first chapter is the rest of Genesis. And uh, we saw last week that the text of Genesis in the original Hebrew uh, is divided not into 50 chapters. If you look at your translation, it's got 50 headings in it. That's not the original text. The original text in Hebrew had 10 chapter divisions, 
and they begin at what we call chapter 2 and verse 4. And from chapter 2, verse 4 in our Bibles, through to the end of Genesis, you get a narrative history that describes the story of humanity. And it reads like narrative history. It speaks about Adam and Eve, and then their rebellion against God. And the ten chapters that follow on from that to the end of the book of Genesis trace God's line of promise through succeeding generations to redeem humanity. And the purpose of the author of Genesis, Moses, writing that narrative history of humanity is to give God's people confidence that God will and is, as they read Genesis, redeeming humanity. And that he is calling a people to himself that will be his light to the nations, that will bring his message of salvation to the world. And so as they read Genesis, they read that God's plan has begun. He is redeeming humanity. He will protect them. He will care for them. He will bring his people to the promised land. And that's the message of Genesis. God is redeeming humanity. And it is a message written for God's people to give them confidence in God because all around them it looks and feels like the world is against God and his people. Or God's people feel weak in the world. Or God's purposes often look weak in the world. Yesterday, I spent the afternoon with one of our children in the portrait gallery because he's, uh, he wanted to learn how to paint faces better. So off we went, and uh, we spent most of our time in the portrait gallery, not looking at paintings, but looking at face masks of dead people. It's fascinating. And uh, when you go into the portrait gallery, it's very striking that what you encounter, first of all, is uh, a bust, a marble statue of, and it encouraged me, of Thomas Chalmers, after whom our church is named. There it is at the entrance. And then you go up the stairs to the gallery, and there's a big portrait on the wall of Eric Little. And it says, missionary, loyal to Jesus, told the gospel, and then it had the bit about uh, his uh, running. It's very striking, just in the entrance. And then at the top of the stairs, encouraged as I was to see a bust of Thomas Chalmers, after whom this church is named at the bottom, I was confronted with a great big portrait of the said Thomas Chalmers. And it struck me that there was an age when that kind of stuff dominated our culture. But of course, it's now in the portrait gallery, in a museum. And I thought about uh, uh, Genesis, and God's purposes often look weak. And God's people often feel weak. And there are lots of churches in this city that are vibrant, and we thank God for that. 
but proportionately, they're weak. Many of you in the CU, it's vibrant across the city, the different CUs, but proportionately, it's weak. Whole groups, great, but proportionately, we feel weak. And we feel weak as individual Christians often in our lives. We feel weak as churches. Will God provide? Will He care for us? Will He get us home to the promised land? Will He turn the fortunes of the gospel around in the Western world again? Will He? And the message of Genesis is He is redeeming humanity. He will bring His people home. He will care for His people. He will provide Him. The only thing you need to fear in the world is if you do not fear God. If you trust Him, then you fear nothing around you. I came across a great uh, sermon this week on Genesis 1, and it said what the purpose of Genesis as a book is. It's almost as if God takes His church, or the local church, or a CU, or a whole group, or a small group, or your family, or yourself, by the shoulders. Sometimes, of course, God takes us by the scruff of the neck to shake us a bit. Sometimes, though, He takes us by the shoulders to say, keep steady, keep strong, keep trusting. That's the message of Genesis. I am redeeming humanity. And you're part of that, however weak you feel. Now, with that as the message of Genesis, what is the message of Genesis chapter 1, 1 to 2, 3, or what we call 1, 1 to 2, 3? Moses, the author, casts our minds right back to the God who created it all. And as you, on the journey, trust that God will care for you, provide for you, get you home to the promised land, and is redeeming humanity, how do we know that He can? Because He is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He is that powerful. Therefore, you can trust Him to get you through today. That's the point of it all. So, that's what guides our reading of Genesis chapter 1. And it functions a little bit like a preface in a book or an introduction to the book. The narrative history of humanity starts in chapter 2, verse 4, and we'll get to that. And it reads like history. But here at the beginning, we get a kind of preface or an introduction or a prologue. And uh, there are four things that uh, over the four weeks we're drawing out of that. Last week, God's Word creates. And uh, we saw last week that that repeated phrase in the text, God said, and it was so. And the point of that is that God is not a silent God. He is a speaking God. So I encouraged us to enjoy the voice of God in His creation. And a couple of you have 
said to me this week that you've done that, and that's great. But God speaks to us primarily through his word, which is why we open it up every Sunday, which is why if you're beginning to feel more steady than you did 10 minutes ago, as all the issues of life were in your head, why are you beginning to feel more steady? Because God speaks to us through his word. This is real. It's his voice. And you feel most steady when, as God speaks to you through his word, his word turns you to the living word, the Lord Jesus, at the heart of it all. That was last week. A bit of a summary. Today, we're going to look at perfection in creation and perfection in God. Next week, Andy Robertson's going to help us to think about rest. That's a good uh, subject, rest. What does it mean when God rested on the seventh day? What does that mean? And then uh, we'll come back in a couple of weeks and look at humanity. Don't miss the one in humanity. It's wonderful to reflect on how God poured himself into the creation of the universe and especially into the creation of humanity. Don't miss the chance to reflect on what it means to be made in the image of God as a human. Striking stuff. But today, God's perfect creation. And uh, what I want to do as we explore this together is to show you how this preface at the beginning of Genesis is constructed. The message today I want us to grasp is that God's creation is perfect and what that says about the perfect nature of God. And to grasp that, I want you to see how the text of this preface is written to convey perfection in creation. It is kind of highly patterned uh, prose. And uh, we're not Hebrew scholars. We have a few here. Most of us aren't. If we were, we would really see this, okay? So there are bits you've got to take my word for it, and I've taken other people's word for my words, okay? So in the Hebrew, it's a even more pattern than we see in our English translations, even though we see the pattern very clearly. Let me show you. Look at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The three nouns there, God, heavens, and earth. If I asked you to count the number of times God appears in the bit that follows, you'd get to 35. Five times seven. If you counted the number of times heavens appears, you'd get to 21, three times seven. Earth, 21, three times seven. In the Hebrew text, what we call verse one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, in English, ten words, in Hebrew is seven words. The creation of or the text that refers to the seventh day, which is the seventh paragraph 
in the text consists in Hebrew of three sentences, each of seven words. Now, that is an illustration of the author's intent to write a highly structured, patterned bit of prose, sequencing of sevens. And the number seven in the Bible is symbolic and always speaks of God's perfection, his perfect order. You see what the writer's trying to do. Now, another uh, feature of the highly patterned prose is the repetition of phrases. So, last week we looked at the repeated phrase, and God said, let there be. Just have a look at that with me. You can see it in verse 3, and God said, let there be. In verse 6, and God said, let there be. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters. Verse 11, 14, 20, and right through. Another phrase, and it was so. Another phrase, and God saw. Another phrase, and it was good. Another phrase, and there was evening and there was morning the first day, and there was evening and morning the second day, and there was evening and morning the third day. The the only exception to the intricacy of the sevens is that on day two, God did not say it was good Why? Because it was Monday morning. I don't know why he doesn't say it was good, but uh, in the pattern of that, it's the only exception to the multiplicities of seven. I hope you see from the text what Moses is trying to do, the author. Let me show you one other striking feature of this pattern text, and uh, getting my head around this has really helped me understand. Helen's going to stick the diagram up. I'll move across so you can see it. In the new creation, you'll have 2020 vision so you can read it. Okay? Just have a look at that with me. This is, it's not a lecture on Genesis 1. This is how Moses writes the whole thing. Okay? And uh, if you have a look at that at the top, the first verse is like a heading over the chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, what he created initially was without form. It was formless and void, which means empty. So what does God do to a formless and an empty earth? He forms it and he fills it. And you see the pattern of days that form the earth. Day 1, day 2, day 3, light, dark, sea, sky, land, vegetation. And then days 4, 5, and 6, he fills the earth, sun, moon, and stars, sea creatures and birds, land-based creatures and humans. And what the author does is parallel 1 with 4, 2 with 5, 3 with 6 in his literary construction. So let me show you that in the text of Genesis. Just look at the Bible for a minute. Day 2, described in verses 6 to 8, God created the sea and the sky. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse, separated the waters, and there was under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, the sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. God formed the sea and sky. And then look at day five. He filled it, verse 20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse 
of the heavens. So, you see the linguistic literary structure. And then at the bottom there, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and on the seventh day God finished the work that he had done, and he rested. Thank you, Helen. Now, the reason I've shown you that, I, I've been very struck by that when, I've, uh, when I was shown that, just by the way the text is constructed. And the point of all of this is so we understand that Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is not written as a scientific text. It is not written to lead us into discussions and debates about precisely how or precisely how long it took God to create the heavens and the earth. What Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3 is written to do is to say that God's creation is perfect and that God the Creator is perfect. Now, that said, some Christians hold the view that God created the world in six 24-hour days. He could have done, he may have done. Other Christians hold the view that God created the world over a much longer period of time, I would hold that view, and find creation and evolution complementary in many respects and not contradictory. But whatever view you hold, and I guess there is a spectrum beyond either of these views, one cannot be dogmatic either way, at least on the basis of this premises, this preface at the beginning of Genesis, which is not about how or how long. It is about the fact that God did create the heavens and the earth and that what he made was perfect. That is the point of this highly patterned prose. Now, what therefore can we learn from this description of God's perfect creation? Primarily, what we learn is what God is like. The Bible is not about me or you. The Bible is not even about God's plan and his purposes. The Bible is supremely about God. And so what we learn from the first chapter of the Bible is about God's perfect creation that we might learn about the perfect God of creation. That's the point of these verses. So that we will have confidence and encouragement and of course, if you believe in the God of these verses, then you will not worry about tomorrow. You will not doubt that God will provide for you. You will not panic when on this half of the globe things are on the slide for the church. You will not wobble when you realize that your whole group 
has six or seven Christians, and there are 250 others there. Because God will take you by the shoulders and he'll tell you, keep steady. If this is your God. Now, what I've done is I've picked three words that describe God's perfect creation. I'm a preacher, so I had to pick three. But they've each got 45 subwords. No, they don't. Three words. Three words that tell us about the creation, that tell us about God. One, everything. God created everything. Because that's supremely important. This uh, text was written initially to God's people when all around them, everybody had a whole pile of gods who created all sorts of other stuff. And that, that's a kind of nightmare scenario that you don't know who created what. claim of the Bible is that God created all things, everything. That is clear from this preface. Think of the diagram on the screen behind me that we had up. In the beginning, there was God and nothing else. Then he created the heavens and the earth. It was formless. It was empty. He formed it and he filled it. He did it all. He completed it. Then he rested the whole structuring of the preface in the elaborate sequencing of sevens is there to convey completeness. Let there be, and it was so, each according to its kind, and God saw that it was very good. Now, I have resisted, rightly, I think, in our sermons in Genesis to endlessly quote to you marvelous facts about the universe. Let me give you one. What this is saying is God created the trees, all the trees, including the 40,000-odd species of a certain kind of tree. It's not that God created this tree and somebody else created other trees. This is a claim to sovereignty in creation. And if you conclude that God is real, and this is the God you believe in, then the creation reveals a sovereign, almighty, astonishingly powerful God. And therefore, when Genesis 1 takes you by the shoulders, you will not worry about tomorrow. That's the point. He created everything. And you get these throwaway lines, the end of verse 17 and the stars. I said I'd give you one stat. I'm going to give you two. If the stars, apparently, I don't know the idea this is true. I've never counted the stars. Sometimes I do wonder if anyone ever has or these numbers are just made up. Sure, they're not. You know, up in the Braids, Carlton Hill, the observatory, I bet they count the stars. Apparently, I don't really believe this, but apparently... If you took everybody on the planet this morning and gave them a pile of stars each, we would get two trillion each. I can't believe that. It's true. Can you believe that's true? Just as well, God is in control of that and not me. Imagine if you had two trillion stars to look after. I find these statistics actually quite frightening. Frightening. 
my wife really finds them frightening. I'm not allowed to talk about these in term of prayer. It frightens me until I think how much more frightened I would be if I said no to the God who made them. Because we should fear God. Or remember what it was like when we didn't believe in him. And of course, the fact that God created everything, so Genesis 1 claims, means that he is sovereign over all, awesome in his power and authority, majestic in his being. And of course, that's such a fundamental claim that God makes. Because if he is not sovereign, somebody else is. And heaven help us if this world really is in the control of us or anybody else. You know the worship song we sing, How Great is Our God. Sometimes I think it would be better to to kind of have the musicians sing it for us and throw out the line, How great is your God? How big is your God? How great is your God? Is he this big? Well, you do not need to worry about tomorrow. You do not need to worry that he has plans for you folks in university to build his kingdom, because he will. Second word is order. The text of this preface communicates many things. Perhaps above all else, it communicates order, structure, pattern, and rhythm. How does it communicate order? Well, the repeated phrases, the sevens, the patterns, all that stuff. One of the wonderful things about science is that it is the investigation or the understanding and the description of order. I said to William yesterday in the portrait gallery, William, who gave the artist the inspiration to paint? Of course, he's well-primed. Jesus. I said, no, William, it was God. And of course, then we get to the what the artist painted. Who did that? Of course, the answer's God. Yesterday, we had a museum day. We, we came up. We didn't go into it, but we thought about it. William said by that stage, Daddy, I'm tired of museums. The news, the Surgeon's Hall Museum has opened up again. Medical museum. Go in there, and what do you see? Wonderful scientific discoveries. Wonderful pictures of the human body. Little gory. What does it say to you about God? Science is no enemy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Science, bit by bit, year by year, generation by generation, as our microscopes get bigger and our knowledge gets greater, we unmask a little more of the infinite mind and capacity of our Creator God. Somebody builds a submersible that can go down to 20 million feet, And we have never seen before what lives at that depth. Science is a wonderful thing. 
Science did not invent the laws of motion. Science discovered how our universe works. Mathematicians did not invent equations. Equations always exist in the patterns of mathematics in the universe. They simply invent ways of describing them, and God gives some of them minds beyond our minds to understand them. Somebody in our church is uh, writing a book effectively to write an equation that describes how a black hole works. 300 pages, one equation. I asked them to explain to me the book. They said, no, I can't. Fair enough. (laughs) But that equation doesn't precede the black hole, does it? It just describes it in its wonderful complexity. God's order. So whether your discipline is medicine, mathematics, botany, or ornithology, or joinery, we had a builder in our house recently, and I was trying to get to the gospel via the wood and the nails. And I said to him, where does, where does equilibrium come from? And he looked at me, he said, I'm some kind of nutter. Where does the structure come from? Where does the... And he said, well, gravity. Where does gravity come from? The order in God's creation reflects the ordered nature of God. All that God does has order, planning, and method and purpose. Now, you might have a weekly planner on your phone or in your diary... Some of you students might not have one at all. You might even have a yearly planner. But God has a divine plan of the heavens and the earth and their vastness and in all their detail. So you do not need to worry about tomorrow, which is not a reason for you to throw away your wall planner. But you don't need to worry about tomorrow. And the reason that the Bible keeps saying you don't need to do that is because we do. I do anyway. Even as I said to you out loud just now, I don't need to worry about tomorrow. I'm thinking about tomorrow. But you don't. Really. Last word is good. God's creation is good. That repeated phrase through the text, and God saw that it was good. And God saw that it was good. God's creation is good, and we Christians should not say good in creation through gritted teeth. There is no injunction in the Bible for asceticism, which means we should not enjoy what God has created. Sometimes, as Christians, we feel that enjoying the good in God's creation is a guilty pleasure that when you become a Christian, thank God that you should then give up. So, for example, some of you love watching sport. I had to change my illustration there just after last night. 
But those of you who are Scottish fans, didn't you enjoy seeing Scotland lose well again? Which is better than winning. Scotland will get to the edges of progression in the World Cup and spectacularly fail at the last minute. And we will relish that in our psyche as a nation. It's a great success. If you love watching sport, well, do it and enjoy it. Don't make it your idol. Let it lead you to God who gave some people the astonishing capacity as you marvel at what the human body can achieve. I once met Jonathan Edwards, the triple jumper. And, and, and then I marked out the distance he jumped. And you marvel at the human body. Some of you love playing sports. Some of you enjoy gardening, hill walking, sewing, reading, singing, or music. Do not make these things your idols. And that's a danger, isn't it? But enjoy them and see in them and through them to God who created them. It's great having Sam playing his violin today. That's a God coincidence, one of these coincidences that I never work out until I'm standing up here preaching. And I had this quote to to read, a violin concerto is the gut of one animal scraping over the gut of another. Sam, that's not how you sound. (laughs) Although it takes you to quite an advanced level of violin playing for it not to sound like that, to be fair. That's one process view of what you will hear in the last hymn as Sam plays the violin, gut of one animal scraping the gut of another. Or do you hear sound and music and harmony whether it's classical music or a rock band that leads you to God. Which is why when we sing on Sundays, it helps us worship God. And all the goodness in God's creation points us to the very heart of God, which is Good. When we get to humanity, I'm going to teach you what God is love means. There is no mushiness in God's love. To say that God is love means that Father, Son, and Spirit, the intimate relationality of God is poured out into us as humans that we might love others and be loved. And to say that God is good Good is a kind of four-letter misused word in the English language. To say that God is good means that everything or anything that has any vestige of good in your world or on your horizons is from God. God's perfect creation, everything good and ordered, and so we can sing, and rightly so, in a minute or two, O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works thy hand hath made. I see the stars lying on your back on a beach, looking at the dark stars at night. You count them, two trillion of them. I see the stars, then there's a storm, and you hear the thunder, I hear the mighty thunder. What do you do? Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. For the more reflective among you, verse 2, when I 
walk through the forest glades. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee. Now, you're sitting here thinking, and so you should be, this is not the world we live in. And it's not. Yes, there is order in the world. Sometimes I think that as Christians, we, we very quickly say this world is disordered and fallen, which it is. And our human bodies are fallen and disordered, which they are. We get to that very fast, and rightly so. We get to Jesus very fast as the answer, and he is. But there is still order in creation. There is still good in creation. There is still good in humanity. Fallen creation, fallen goodness in humanity says, surely these vestiges suggest to us there is something better or greater or what one day we will be again. Rightly they do. You will not find salvation in the hills. But the hills will cause you to reflect on God and the journey can begin where you will find salvation at the end of the road in Jesus. There is order in creation. There is good in creation. But it is fallen. It is not perfect. And as we read on in Genesis, as we will, we will read of humanity's rebellion against God and the curse on creation and the desperate need of redemption. And so the hymn writer, as we will shortly sing, got it right. Because he goes on to write, after we've sung with our souls at the thunderclap, a very different tone. When I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Can you sing that? If you can sing that, you really do not need to worry about tomorrow. And finally, confidence in our Creator God to care for us, to provide for us, and to bring us safely home. This is Genesis. So what does the hymn writer end? Home. The last verse. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation, and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then shall I bow in humble adoration, and there proclaim, my God, how great that. And when we sing on that day, it will not sound like one gut of an animal scraping over the gut of another. It will be as different from that as you can possibly imagine. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. Now that's the creator God. And let Genesis and Genesis 1 take you by the shoulders as a church, as a small group, as a whole group, as a CU, as a family, beleaguered, as an individual. Maybe you're the only Christian in your family. And just steady you. 
Sometimes God takes us, as I said, by the scruff of the neck, shakes you. Other times he puts his hand on your shoulders and says, the only thing you need to fear is if you do not fear him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, wonderful passage in Scripture. Thank you for uh, the reason it is there to strengthen us, to steady us, and to fortify us. Thank you that on the road, reflecting on the Creator God, instills in us such great and wonderful confidence in our Creator God. Lord, any amongst us who have not yet trusted in Jesus, we pray that you would lead them to the point that they understand who the Lord Jesus is. Your Son, the Creator God, come into this world to redeem it. and Put their faith and trust in Him. And therefore, no longer worry about tomorrow and what tomorrow will bring, but have the confidence in the God of creation who will bring them home to a new creation for eternity. Thank you for your word. Thank you for its encouragement. And we pray that as we sing now of creation's song and of the Lord Jesus and of the new creation, you would encourage our hearts to praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.